Hi, Chris. How are you? Good evening, Rod. Yeah, here we go. Episode 59 on the 5th of March, 2023. I've just noticed our show doc still says 22. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well done. Live pickup. That's very impressive. I thought so. I thought so. And look, we're in the shed. We're ready, ready to go. And we've just had the first Formula One race of the year. So I really enjoyed it. Yay. Yeah, it was probably a yay one this week. It was good to get it back, but it wasn't a lot of action. Okay, fair enough. I, I was aware it was going on. Is it Bahrain? Is that where it was? Yeah. Well done, the news, ITV News, informed me there was a Formula One race in Bahrain. In Bahrain, and Mac- somebody won it. We began with an M. See, no, so I I for anybody. The only one I know is Lewis Hamilton, I, I think. But actually, I've guessed who won just based on you going, M-. so, you know. Yeah. There you go. Should we move on? So hopefully there's not big Formula 1 spoiler fans going on there. 22 days till MotoGP comes back? That's far more exciting. We'd have had another Formula 1 race by then. Well, you know, I think the MotoGP season goes on a bit longer. It goes on till November sometimes. One, two. Yeah. How many races are there? 23. Yeah, it's a bit the same. It's It's got longer over the years, like. And I think this is the longest year we're going to have of races or, or number of races. I think there was going to be a 24th in China, but it's obviously been cancelled. Yeah, that is interesting. Actually, the, the MotoGP format is getting mixed up this year as well. There's going to be a sprint race on the Saturday as well, I think. So rather than doing, you know, Friday warm-up, Thursday warm-up, Friday warm-up, Saturday qualifying, Sunday race, now they're getting like another mini race in as well, which is crazy, frankly. You will never guess what they do in Formula One. Oh, they're not doing that, are they? They started it last year or the year before, and they did three, and we've got six this year. So, like you, it's qualifying on the Friday, sprint race on the Saturday, big race on the Sunday. It's quite good, actually. It gives you, you know, a bit more entertainment in the weekend. I suppose it's good, and what they're really trying to do is sort of sell tickets, aren't they? Because most people go for the race on the Sunday. You know, if you buy a weekend ticket, fine, you might go and watch qualifying, but nobody buys just a Saturday ticket to watch qualifying, do they? So Generally, generally not. So, yeah, I think you're right. It's to ex- extend it out, and there's more opportunity then for an event. Anyway, for anybody not interested in motor racing, that was all very interesting, I'm sure. So, good. Should we dive into follow-up? Yep, straight in. I think you're up first. I got the first couple here, haven't I? So, the first one was IDOS, which I actually, when I went back and looked in my apps, I bought back in the day before it became an open source app, so I didn't need to compile it. So, I have had IDOS running on my iPad. I played Civilization 2. I played a couple of other bits and pieces. Yep, it works. And then I very quickly deleted it again because I don't really need to run DOS games on my iPad. Or So that was that. Yep, non-event. And I think that's kind of where I thought I'd be with it. Like, yeah, I'm going to run it. And I don't know what I'm going to do with it. So I'm glad you've done the homework for me. Yep, that was an easy one. So the second thing is follow up to our listener's question from last week who asked about Downfall, which is a Slay the Spire question. Does it work on Macs? The short answer is yes, it does. There's two ways of going about it. One is you can download the package directly from the Steam store as a, as a free game as long as you've got the original Slay the Spire installed. It gives you modifications to the base game so you get another character. In the base game, there are three characters with one you can unlock, the Watcher. Downfall gives you a fifth character, which you can choose to play, and you can actually play some of the bad guys if you keep going through it as well. So it is a total conversion of the game. Total conversion may be a little bit far. It um, still obeys the rules of Slay the Spire. You know, you draw cards, you play them, you block, you attack, you do all that good stuff. But they give you another character, which is quite professional, actually. You would have almost thought it was the developers of the game that put it in, not fans. Yeah, very impressive. There's new music as part of it. It doesn't affect your base game if you're worried about it messing up your achievements or your ascension levels or all that kind of stuff. It doesn't do that. Very straightforward, actually, to install that version of it. Less straightforward to download the modification workshop stuff 
to get up and running, you need to install a package via the community store. You put that on there and then there's a bunch of modifications you can actually pick from Steam Workshop. Downfall is one of them. And actually going forward, that's the way they recommend that you do it. It's easier than them maintaining a standalone package to download in Steam. So it works. It's very professional. If you're at all interested on a Mac, it works fine. It works on Linux and it works on Windows. So not on the iPad though. So if you are playing it on the iPad, you're kind of knackered. But anywhere you can get access, Steam Workshop works fine. Which isn't a surprise, is it, that it's not going to work on the iPad? Anyway, it sounds like you had a good good bit of homework. And it is nice sometimes to see what a fan will make. Because I sometimes think the fan can do a more faithful version of a mod than maybe the original creators. So it's good. It is good. And it's nice to see, you know, it's it's a game I love anyway. And, and obviously the listener, have, I've made them addicted to it as well. So I apologise for that. But it gives you longevity. Not that Slay the Spire has begun to you know, lose any of its shine as far as I'm concerned. I might not play it quite as much as I used to, but I'll still fire up a game from time to time. And it's quite nice that it sort of injects interest into it again to have something like that. And it makes you think, if there is ever a Slay the Spire 2, maybe the devs would be thinking that way. But I agree with you that fans do have thoughts about the way games should be developed. And isn't it great to see people make use of skills they've got in development and programming to bring these kinds of things to life? Yeah, I'm always amazed with those kinds of skills, how a non-creator can, you know, modify a game or, or do something and they weren't involved in the original dev, how they deconstruct it to do it. So fair play. Sounds good. Should we move on? Yep, move on. Cool. So next up is me. And so I've gone away for the week and tried out sleep mode on my on my phone slash Apple Watch because it is kind of both of them compared. Um, and annoyingly, I'm just looking at my phone now just to pull up the data because I was looking at it and I was thinking, what does it all mean? So I've set my phone, which also sets my watch, to be in sleep mode from 11 o'clock at night till 7 in the morning. So the screen's black on my phone because obviously I've got the always on screen phone, which is nice to have, but frustrating. Obviously, when you go to bed and you put on the charger and it lights up. And so I set that up and I've been wearing the watch for the last week or since a Tuesday night, basically. So what's that? It's one, two, three, four, five, six nights worth of data I've got. But I don't really understand what all the data means. Have you been doing the same or are you still using Sleep Plus Plus? I'm still using Sleep Plus Plus. I find it a lot easier to read. So I've got I've got lots of data and I've got lots of charts and I roughly go to bed at similar sort of time. I may read for slightly longer. And on average, I'm getting seven hours and 24 minutes sleep a week and i'm spending eight hours and six minutes average in bed so i'm usually in bed for about 40 minutes longer than i am asleep which is probably about right because i do do like to read i read quite a lot before i go to bed and obviously that, that varies depending on how sleepy i am so i was looking at that and then you, you can tap into it into the day and you see your graph of you being awake you've been in a deep sleep your core and then rem i don't know what rem means do you know what that means rapid eye movement sleep well you're not you're obviously dreaming or something like that. There's quite a lot going on. Your brain's firing a lot of activity off. So uh, that's REM sleep. Ah, yep. Yeah. No, I've just found the eye in the corner. What I don't really know, though, is for somebody of my age, I'm 40 years old, What? how much deep sleep should I have a night? How much core should I have? You know, what? what is the right sort of levels I should be hitting? And what can I do to, you know, improve my sleep results? That's the, the bit I don't understand. I've now got some data, but I don't know what I should do with the data. Well, I think as with all things in the medical world, it's more about you and the trend that you have. So whatever becomes apparent is normal for you is normal for you. If one of those things starts to dominate, like rapid eye movement sleep, I don't think is particularly restful. For example, if you start seeing more and more of that or not getting enough of that is, of course, the other side of it, then that might be a problem and you might need to start thinking, you know, less cheese before bed or don't have a beer or whatever it is that you do that might be sort of affecting that. So it's literally about, Not that I'm I'm a sleep researcher, but, you know, I think you need to get a feel for what your trend is. And it's only if there's something begins to dominate particularly 
not enough time in bed, too much one kind of sleep, not enough of the other, after you've tracked it for a while that you think that would be a problem. And at that point, it could be a modification in behavior. Like, you know, don't use your iPhone before you go to sleep. You know, don't, like I say, don't eat cheese or something that particular night if it gives you indigestion. Don't drink whiskey. You know, there's, there's things within that that you could do to modify your behavior that would stop you waking up so much or all the rest of it. But, you know, I think they say on average, you should get at least six hours of a, a, a night of sleep, probably more if you can, but not too much either. Like, by the time if you're verging into nine hours that's probably too much sleep for somebody your age so you know the trend is the important thing yeah okay so and by the way do you not have a beer and a block of cheese just before you get into bed do you not have one on your nightstand every night so, so i'm actually being quite good in that i'm trying to have an early dinner with my family around six to seven o'clock and then not eat until lunchtime the next day so i've been doing this intermittent fasting so i think i'm good for the the not eating just before bed and i think i'm largely quite good at not looking at my phone for half an hour before bed because I'm, I'm reading a book what though i am looking at though is i was just looking at the average averages for last week so on average you have spent seven minutes awake when i should have been asleep and i've spent an hour and a half of having rapid eye movement and I've spent an average of five hours and 20 minutes of core sleep so that sounds quite good to me but I've only spent an average of 37 minutes a night in deep sleep which doesn't feel like a big number but I've got like, like I say it'd be good to have some comparison of well what are other people that maybe my sort of age maybe weigh a similar amount to me or my height or whatever you know what, what should I be targeting I think that's what I'd be looking for when the app is how could I make this better? How could I be more effective at sleep? I think that's the one thing it's missing is it's great for tracking the trends. I think it'd be good if I did it for a whole year and you can actually see, oh, look, I slept really badly. Then maybe I was having a stressful moment in my personal life or at work and it might give you some information then. But it's what can you do to improve it, I guess, is what you, what you, you don't have. It's like the missing link, I think. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. That you, you, If you're trying to say what's good and how do I get better, some tips on how to do it would be good. I guess... It's difficult for Apple to provide that in their app because they're not sleep researchers and they haven't obtained any sort of consent from me, for example, similar age-ish, a little bit older, you know, to share that data back with similar people to say what's good. And also, I think we touched on this last week, Apple being prescriptive in the health app about, you know, we're watching your heart rate, we're watching your temperature, we're watching your oxygen saturation or something. They don't really want to be there. They don't want to be the people saying, oh, you're not getting enough rapid eye movement sleep or you're not getting enough deep sleep. You know, make sure you do something to get, and that might not be the right thing to do. So it, I think it's difficult, and that's why, you know, I gave a slightly evasive answer if you've got to look at a trend for you. I mean, there's obviously things you could say were deeply unhealthy. If you're only getting one hour of sleep total a night, then that's a problem. You know, equally, if you're getting 12 hours sleep a night every night, then that's a problem. So, you know, it, you're somewhere in the middle of that, as are we all. But yeah, it, it would be useful to give sort of vague benchmarks, I feel, for what is thought to be healthy based on the current research. Yeah, in a way, you, you kind of want anonymized data from Apple where it's collecting it all. But obviously, there's a problem there because Apple would have to, A, collect it and B, anonymize it. And <laughs> they've already shown they're not fantastic at that. Anyway, I, I saw it was interesting. And it kind of brought me on to my next bit of follow-up. Is whilst I've been doing this, my iPhone actually pinged me the other day and said, your respiratory rate has improved. And I was like, oh, okay, I didn't even know you were monitoring that. I probably pronounced that wrong, by the way. It's a word I do struggle with. But apparently it's decreased, decreased over the last five days and it actually has improved. And I had to Google that to see, actually, is my rate going down a better thing or a worse thing? But from what I'd read, it sounded like it was a better thing because you're taking less press per minute. Well, um, it, it depends what you're doing. If you're running a race, you'd expect to be breathing a bit hard. If you're sleeping, then, you know... Yeah, well, no, this is when you're sleeping. Yeah, so yeah, it measures yeah. it whilst you're asleep. But I didn't even know it measured that whilst yeah. you were asleep. So, so I found that quite interesting that that was something it measures that I had no idea it was measuring in the background. It kind of also makes me wonder, what else is my watch measuring that I have no idea about? Did you find temperature 
while we were at it, being as we were talking about that last week. Which brings me to the next thing. I still don't seem to be getting my temperature, even though I've worn it for six days. And I think you reported that it was meant to start logging it after five days. So yeah, that, that was the whole reason I started wearing the watch in the first place, was to answer that question. And I am putting mine in sleep mode, which is something I recommended you you try, but it doesn't seem to make any odds. So yeah, so we haven't got an answer on, on that. I found out my respiratory rate has decreased, which I think is positive. I should sleep, so that's good. And I find out my sleep's okay, but I probably need to carry on wearing the watch for a lot longer. I think the big surprise for me, though, was my, my Apple Watch Ultra wasn't actually that bad in bed. I was worried it was a bit chunky because it's quite a chunky watch. But actually, it's been fine. I wore it overnight and it was a non-event and I hadn't really noticed it. The one bit I have struggled with is charging it because I'm often finding it's running out at various points because I haven't quite worked out a good routine to charge it yet. So I need to do a bit of work on that. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, like I say, I often can wear it at night, stick it on the charger in the morning, go for a shower, sort myself out. As long as I remember to pick it up again before I leave the house in the morning, 45 minutes to an hour is enough for 100%. And it does do two days worth of charge for me. You know, it's that that's okay. I do have a spare charger in my bag that I take to the office. So if I do need to top it up in the office, I can do that too. But that's very rare I need to do that. Yes, same. I've got the spare charger. I just haven't got the routine yet. I just need to iron that out but but i'm sure that'll come so i normally charge a little bit at night before i go to sleep when i'm reading or when i you know brush my teeth and all of that and then i do it again in the morning at the same sort of times but it's just not quite enough yet so i need, I need to work on that one but no it, it was it was good overall i think i'm going to carry on wearing the watch at night just to see if i get a bit more stats so i think it'll be good to see it after a couple of weeks and and actually see, am I actually using any of this data or is it not doing anything for me? And I it, don't have a good answer to that yet. It is quite interesting. And I, I, I kind of, we were going to talk in the main show about health stuff and, and maybe I will do that, but I'm worried I'll forget about the point about the watch now is one of the things the watch has done is it tracks your cardiac recovery time when you're exercising and all the rest of it. And that's a good metric of your health. And it told me the other day that I was doing well, it improved that. And you think, as you said, with a, with a decreasing respiratory rate while you were asleep, that's interesting. I didn't know you were doing that. I knew you could do ECG. I didn't know you could do anything with my cardiac recovery time or, or, or something like that. So it, it's odd that it's collecting this data about you that and it says, well done, you've done a thing. And you go, well, all right, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? You know, it, they, I feel like they, as with your sleep thing, they do need to give you a little more data about ultimately what this means. Any of the things in the health app, you can go and click I and I'll say something like, blood pressure is the force of the blood pushing against the walls of your blood vessels. Great. You know, it, as a high one bad, you know, I know a high one's bad. I know a particularly low one's bad. But I'm in a fortunate position where I know a little bit about the biology of it. Other people, it's just, blood pressure is a mystery for them. They know it's a number over another number, but maybe if they're really advanced, a mean number. So I, I do feel there's an educational piece if they're going to start tracking this stuff. I guess people who are particularly interested will know. But as with you with sleep, they could do a better job of, of surfacing why that's good, why that's less good, without being too prescriptive. Yeah, and I think I think that's the thing because they've made this data really accessible to lay people like me that just don't know what it means. You were just talking about blood pressure. I've no idea what those numbers mean, but like maybe I should know. So I, th I think they've got some work to do there. Now they've got the data, they're collecting it, they're presenting it in quite a good way. The graphs look great. But now, can you just give me a bit more explanation of what's good, what's bad, what should I be aiming for for somebody of my shape and size and my age? I guess. Yeah, no, that's good and something worth keeping an eye on. And they do improve it as we talked about last week. Good. Okay, that's interesting. The next story is also yours, I think. Yeah, just finally, we, we talked a lot last week about the the shoulder surfing that people do to get your PIN code, and then they might steal your phone off you, put, put your PIN code in, reset your Apple ID, and then they pretty much own you. 
in your account. One piece of advice I listened to on another podcast, the ATP, the Accidental Tech Podcast, they said you could turn on screen time and just set it for you on your phone so that you have screen time turned on so you can't make any changes to your account settings without putting in another pin code, which is a four-digit screen time pin, which is separate to your pin to unlock your device. And therefore, if somebody did steal your phone, they then wouldn't be able to go into settings and make any changes because the chances are they wouldn't have seen you do this four-digit pin code. And I actually thought, that's quite a good idea. And I do do that with my children's iPads, but I've never thought I'd doing it for my personal devices. So I just thought that that was a good way if you were paranoid about that. In essence, you've got a secondary pin for any account changes. That's what I want to say. Yeah, that is a good idea. And I think it's one of those, I, I don't think I'd want it all the time. I don't really want it to turn on screen time on my, my personal device. But if I was traveling, you know, somewhere where phone theft is maybe more likely, not that it's unlikely in the UK, to be quite clear, but, you know, Barcelona, for example, when I've been in Barcelona before, I've been warned by wasters and things not to leave devices on tables and all the rest of it, because somebody just will cycle by and take, you know, run by and take take a device off the table. So somewhere like that, I might be inclined to think, right, that's a good idea. I should do that extra step. Yeah, I just thought it was actually quite a clever idea. And how often do you go and change your account settings anyway, quite infrequently? I mean, it is just a four-digit pin, but it would be separate from your device pin. So I thought it was a good solution as a secondary way of doing the authentication before Apple make any changes, which probably won't happen till later on this year if they do it at all. Fair enough. Good. I think that's us for follow-up. Quite a lot of follow-up this week. Yeah, sorry about that. It was quite a bit on the health side, but I, I thought it was important to follow up. We've had a bit of a health kick lately, I think, all of us. So interesting. Should we get on to news? I think we'll get on to news, yeah. So first story is from Forbes, and it's talking about, I mean, I will find it more interesting when this stuff hits the business press mainstream media away from sort of the Apple the Apple rumor mill as much as anything else about what the next generation of phones are going to look like. And I don't think there's anything in this that's surprising based on what we've talked about already. You know, where there's new iPhones coming. Wow, we know that they'll come, you know, fairly soon after WWDC in September. That's going to be the iPhone 15. Everybody now agrees they're going to have USB-C ports. Yay, I think that's a good thing. The, the the headline for this that you know you're going to have one shocking thing come along come along with it i.e. the USB C speeds are going to be slower we talked about it last week but it's interesting how this gets pitched and sort of clickbait in the main, more mainstream media yeah when you put this in there, I thought didn't we talk about that and then you're you're right that we did talk about it but obviously that was more in, in in the tech sphere rather than in mainstream I think it is interesting when it gets to mainstream and I always find it interesting when I hear somebody play it back to me at work who's not really into tech but has heard oh the new iPhone's going to have a have a better camera next year. And it's like, well, yeah, it pretty much has one every year. That's that's not news. You've just seen it bubble up because it's made it to the FT or, or BBC or whoever. Yeah, it's interesting, but I'm always cautious with any rumour because it's it's nothing's been confirmed yet. And sometimes whilst a lot of rumours do come true, it is just a rumour. So I think it'll be interesting, but it's not an, an Apple move to do it, is it? No, I think it is. And, and the sort of real takeaway from me, as we've talked about before, is that the next iPhone will have more rounded design, new chassis materials and colours. That's the titanium and the Pro models we spoke about last time. Solid state buttons, next gen Wi-Fi. That's not a surprise. And a three nanometer chipset. I mean, none of that is shocking, particularly... If you'd said, that's the Pro Phone, yeah, that's the Pro Phone. You know, they're going to move it along and do all those things. The chassis change, it's due. It's been a couple of years we've had this shape now, so they're going to do a slight thing. You know, the, the, they always want to make it more waterproof and things, hence the solid state buttons, as we talked about. And, of course, crank the prices up. So, yeah. Yeah, it's just pretty standard. You could write one of these articles nearly every year, and it'd be very similar, I think. But it is interesting, like you say, it's in in Forbes on the link you provided and that we're what six months ahead of the iPhones being announced so it's a long way out for it to be 
you know, out in, in the regular world, if that makes sense. I, I think it just shows the attention that the mainstream press now pay to Apple. I mean, Forbes is more business-focused than anything else, and I suspect, I suspect there's a decent number of investors looking at these things. And tech stocks aren't looking great at the moment, and the iPhone's a pretty safe bet most of the time. Apple shares are a reasonably safe bet most of the time, so maybe it's as much to do with that as anything. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Yep, good. Okay, sticking with business news and, and rumours. The next story is also something we've touched on before, and it's Apple may kick off the M3 chips with the launch of the 13 and 15-inch MacBook Airs by WWDC, this is saying. I think they should get everything to M2 and just get parity in the platform, finish the, the transition to Apple Silicon, and and then do M3 next year would be would be my preference and take a year off because they're never going to have everybody and maybe this will happen is they won't have every device on the same set of chips we'll always have a couple of devices maybe out of sync but interesting that the Air the sort of cheapest laptop gets the the faster chip quicker biggest selling model yeah and look the Air does look fantastic what a device but it's interesting to get the more performing chip and I guess only getting the the, the baby version you know the regular chip interesting and obviously they're talking about a bigger air coming too so they've got some really exciting products coming i think they do but i'm kind of with you in one way i mean i'd quite happily skip the m2 generation i don't think it's enough of a jump over my m1 that i've got sitting here next to me and i know you've been really enjoying your m1 pro as well um so the m2 eh, neither here nor there having said that i don't like the fact there's still m1 things in the lineup so you know particularly the, the apple studio the studio mac why hasn't that been updated to the m2 chips and then there's the big problem, which is A, the iMac is still on an M1 and a very base model M1 at a very small screen size. And then there's the Mac Pro. Now, I reckon that the Studio Mac is really what they always wanted the Mac Pro to be. You know, it's very expandable on the outside. They don't need to bother with the inside. It runs very cool. You could slam an M3 in there and off you go. Despite all the swapping in and out silicon and a chip that I think we talked about last week and if we didn't, many other podcasts did. So... It's a strange situation, is it, where you've still got one Intel chip in the lineup. You've got a bunch of good, high-selling computers, iMacs, on the M1. You've got the new Pro models, the Studio, still on the M1. And then you've got the laptops, which are the most common, th- you know, commonly bought things at this point, I think, almost entirely on M2. So it's interesting. Uh, I agree it's interesting. Do you know what the one thing I thought the Apple Silicon transition was going to bring was much simpler processes? But actually, all it's done is make it really confusing because... You can get, an, I'm going to get the names wrong, you can get an M1, you can get an M1 Pro, an M1 Max, an M1 Ultra. And then inside those, you can then get one with 10 cores and 32 GPU cores, and then one with, I don't know, 12 cores and 64 GPU cores, or in, you know, insert some random numbers here. And they've actually made it a lot more complicated than I thought. I thought it was going to be really transparent and really straightforward, but I'm guessing what they're doing is maximizing the binning process which is where they end up with some chips that don't have all the cores needed and therefore they're not actually having wasted so it probably is right what they're doing but it's made it quite complicated when you come to choose a new device yeah i'd go with that i think they could simplify things a little bit but let's face it it was no simpler in the in the intel days was it you know i3 i5 celeron this many chips that much memory i9s came along towards the end with dodgy keyboards which wasn't intel's fault but you know then was the, there was the lack of reliability in an upgrade pathway would we get the current the current generation of intel stuff would we be one generation behind they ran really hot let's face it i think if you're not spending a lot of money on a Mac product and you saw, said even by last year's M1 base model Mac Mini, that's a lot of chip for a lot of people. And you're not going to yeah. go wrong with that. No, I agree. My, I was just talking to my wife before we started recording. She's got the M1 MacBook Air, the original one that came out. It's fantastic. She, she's never once turned around in the last two years and gone, 
getting a bit bit slow this it will be fine for her for a long time i think the thing that will give out on it will be uh, the keyboard or, or some of the hardware before the, the chip gets too slow it amused me this week my eldest daughter who's well, still in her first year at university but she's doing a science-based degree so there's a reasonable amount of demands on her typing things up and making use of her computer and all the rest of it and she sent me a picture of her macbook air m1 macbook air in rose gold open with a, a bagel on one side and a cup of tea on the other with split screen you know she had something writing in a web page web browser open and she's going rate my setup i thought that's interesting that's not a thing i've ever sent her or asked her to do she, you know, there she is working away quite the thing with her mac i thought yeah that's not that's not bad you you i could see there's a bit of proud father there just just a little bit you know I'm, well, fantastic whether she passes her first year is another thing entirely but certainly she's got the right look going i think that's oh, it's fantastic isn't it I'm, I'm i'm interested to see when my children are older what their seller will be yeah we'll see how things change i did send back a picture of my mac at work with the two screens around it and, and all the rest of bits and pieces as well because you've got to do one upmanship otherwise what's the point you should have something to aim for. Absolutely. The other bit at the tail end of this rumor that you may have missed, if you don't scroll to the bottom, is that they're still talking, and this is from Mark Gurman, these rumors, in a touchscreen MacBook by 2025. And again, that's something I'm really interested in. I'm interested, but it's just too far away for me to worry about it. Apple's plans will, will come and go in that time. So I don't know. I, I like to see the actual news, not the rumors. It was funny, I was in the optician yesterday getting my prescription checked and I was watching the optician, or the optometrist I should say, use the various computers in there to fire things up on the wall and, you know, that's an E, that's an R, what's the line you can read and all the rest of it. And that's a very touchscreen based job. You know, they sit next to you in the chair, they're tapping things on the screen, they're saying this cylinder, you know, this this effect on the eye, look at this scan and all the rest of it. And they only really use the keyboard for typing stuff. Every other single thing that they do is tapping a, a, a touchscreen monitor and I thought, actually in that kind of area it absolutely makes sense to have touchscreens doesn't it but not on a laptop um yeah i'd agree with you there i think that makes sense yep anyway good moving on i think the next one no well the next suite of stories is about regulation do you want to kick us off with this one yeah i, I kind of put them all, all together because i thought we got just a little bit about apple and regulation here and microsoft so we've got eu antitrust regulators to target apple's anti-steering developer restrictions but drop in-app purchase cases Oh, a bit of a mouthful. So which one was this? Because I've read so many of these stories. So the European Commission has confirmed a previously issued preliminary view that Apple's so-called anti-steering practices, basically which prevent developers informing users about alternative payments, constitutes unfair trading. So this is when you go in an app and they can't send you off to their own website for you to check out. You have to pay an app and therefore Apple take circa 15 to 30% depending on, on, the, on the setup in the back end. And so Apple are stopping those developers going, you know what, you could click on this link and pay via our website or your other account with us. You can't do that. I'm amazed it's taken this long for somebody to pick up this because I think it's been something long disputed that, you know, Amazon, say when you're in the Kindle store, couldn't just have a link going, let's just go over to Amazon.com or code uk buy your book and it will just appear in your library no you've got to buy it within app and therefore pay pay the, the tax to apple if that makes sense so it's it's been like that for a long time so i don't understand why after more than 10 years suddenly this has bubbled up to the top well, I think everybody was hoping Apple would sort it out a little bit more quickly, more than anything, weren't they? So, I mean, the case you've pointed out there is yeah, that... But they've got no incentive though, have they? Well, they haven't, but... It does give users a worse experience. And Apple used to be the company that gave the user the best experience, at least said they gave the user the best experience. So the two sort of prime the prime problems in this have been Amazon, who want to sell you books in that way, and Netflix with the other one, 
who you know you used to be able to sign up for a Netflix account inside of Netflix. Netflix aren't even able to point you in the direction of here's how you actually create an account. When you load a Netflix account up on an Apple device, iPhone or iPad, you, the, I think you've got to click on help and then there's something else and then there's something else and then you can eventually get there. But there's not a, go here and do this and you can watch your Netflix. It's a very user hostile experience. Yeah, I agree with that. There should just be a, a register, register now link. And if it fires up here, you know, even if it's in, in app, web browser which apple indoors and you can just pop your details in i i think this has been backwards for a long time like i said i just thought it was one of those things that everybody just got used to it so it is interesting they, they have picked up now and you're right apple should have you know been grown up and dealt with this earlier but for whatever reason they've got a they've got no incentive and b i guess they want to see how long they could get away with it for and well, they got away with it for ages and i think the ec is right to be pushing on this frankly then the flip side of this is that i think there's no problem with in-app purchase well, we've we've got lots of opinions about that. I've got some issues with an mm. with an app purchase, particularly around scammy sort of gambling apps. The you know things like that that immediately are trying to get kids to buy things in games. Some of the two factor authenticator apps we talked about last week, the scammy ones, and that that kind of an app purchase is very very wrong. I don't mind the carrot weather saying get a year subscription for for whatever or one of those apps like that. I trust, but I mean there is a push towards an app purchase anyway. I, I, but I think it needs to be measured in it, in its sort of put that out for ease of use. Fine, but it shouldn't just be farming kids to get new skins for whatever Roblox knockoff they've got. No, I agree with that. And getting people to sign up for something that's I don't know a pound a week, and all of a sudden they're spending fifty two pounds a year on something that they they didn't realise they were spending that much money on. And I, yeah, I, I I think there's a lot of work to do here. I think Apple, like you, should have been the bigger person and gone we're going to do it properly now and we're going to, you know, we're going to police ourselves, but no, it's gone to the, you know, it's the European commission. Yeah. The European commission this time to, to straighten them out. Yeah. Not good enough, really. Well, there we go. We'll keep an eye on that story as we always do. And, you know, it is interesting that it's these lawmakers that are trying to sort of sort this problem out now, really. Moving on, we now have also with the EU, regulators reportedly set to approve Microsoft Activision buyout. So this has been our never-ending story of competition of markets authority in the UK and the EC and the, the US regulators as well looking into this and saying, no, 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 it's not right. Microsoft pushing back and saying, but we're only the smallest people, you know, console developer in the, in the world. It's okay if we do this kind of thing. And it now looks like the EU are quite happy with it. Yeah, so it looks like Microsoft have got deals with Nintendo, NVIDIA and Sony, and therefore they're getting the green light on it. So I guess they've satisfied the concerns. It is interesting. As a player of the game, or used to be a more, I've talked about it enough in this podcast, people know how I feel about it, is that the community is kind of turning against Call of Duty at the moment. They really feel they're being really heavily nickel and dimed in skins they're putting out, the quality of the game they're, they're putting out. For example, I've talked before about there's a division in the game between Call of Duty as was, six players versus six players on small maps, shoot each other, rinse, repeat, and then the bigger sort of expansions, Call of Duty Warzone and Call of Duty DMZ. And all the attention is on Warzone and DMZ and the traditional 6v6 maps are suffering. I think they've only released six in total in this round of the game. So there's a lot of pushback from the playing community that clearly Activision are only wanting to sell you skins and battle passes and that kind of stuff and not actually improving the quality of the base game, which is valid, I think. So this could be a bit of a poison pill. They're, they've gone through all this effort to buy the studio, but there's a lot of pushback from the, from the base of people playing it. And let's face it, Gamers are fickle. They will move on to something else if something else comes along. Are they particularly dissatisfied? So, interesting times. Yeah, it's going to be interesting how this one plays out, I think. I wonder if it will finally get approved, though. You know, I don't know. We seem to be in a bit more smoke now that it's going through. I'm not surprised. I thought 
I thought there would be a way this would end up happening. You know, they've just got to find the right balance. And it looks like, to be fair to Microsoft, they've tried to appease everybody. Yeah, they have. I mean, th this is from an article in Rock Paper Shotgun that's been linked to here, but I quite like the journalist's comment towards the bottom. As I said previously, I don't understand why time-limited partnerships would soothe antitrust concerns. This is 10-year deals with Nintendo, for example, that we talked about last week. Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard still puts them in control of an enormous number of video games, and these contracts would only seem to delay the inevitable. And that's very valid. Yeah, unless the, the rivals such as Nintendo and Sony think that, well, 10 years is long enough, and by then, insert something here would have come along, because will, will the game still be number one in 10 years' time? It's it's hard to know, isn't it? You're already talking about it a little bit that, you know, it's losing favour in a few camps. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, we shall see, I guess. Time will tell. But, you know, it's 69 billion. It's a lot. There's problems with an Activision. But at the same time, it's a lot of IP. They're getting a lot of products for that for that deal. They are. And obviously then they can make sequels, alternative games, remasters, you know, so they've got plenty of options here. They do. Third story is similar to our first one. It's Europe trimming the Apple App Store probe after deciding an app payment's not a problem. This is from the register, so it's just sort of what we were talking about in the first story, really. I don't think there's anything particularly... No, different. I don't think there's anything new there. I think it's just another article, though, just, just detailing it. it. might be good for the listeners if they want to go and, and read through it. It's, I do like the register. I think they report really well, so it's, it's just another take, isn't it? They do, and they've got a good sense of humour, so it's always worth having that alternative look at things. Good. Moving on. And the next one is, I thought this was quite interesting. I think you put this in the notes, but I did see this, that the first look at Google's Chrome engine, which is called Blink, basically, so their web browsing engine that, running on an iPhone. So again, this is part of deregulation as well in that Apple may be forced to make or allow other web, web browser authors, such as Chrome or Microsoft or Firefox, to actually put their engines onto iOS, whereas at the moment they are they're forced by Apple to just use Apple's engine, if that makes sense. And this is apparently Google with their engine up and running and a, and a you know, Google native browser done, done all their way. So what do you think? Well, I, I won't surprise anybody here based on what we've talked about before. I think this is good. I think it, you should have choice on, on, on your iPhone and your iPad in the same way that you do on, on your computer. You know, I can run Chrome, I can run Arc, I can run Firefox, I can run Opera, and all of these things are good. And I think allowing people not just to choose the, the coat of paint they've got on the browser because on at the moment on the iphone and the ipad they're all just safari under this under the hood to actually bring the engines over and see what's better we all hit compatibility issues with safari on iphone from time to time there's no getting around it you ha occasionally you have to go off and you have to use you know chrome on a on a on, a, on a, a different platform so i think it's only actually in apple's interest to allow them to do this yeah, and again, as per previous topic we were talking about with regulation, they've taken too long to open this up. They should have done it off their own backs rather than being forced to do it. Totally agree. Totally agree. Good. Okay, I think we can agree with that. So moving on, malware on Windows. Yeah, so this was an interesting one. I had to read about this. I'm not a Windows user, as you know, but this is there's, some, there's a malware out there called Black Lotus, and it can bypass secure boot on Windows devices, which is mental, isn't it? You've got a secure boot, boot on a device, but yet, by its very nature, it doesn't sound that secure. Yeah, so there was a big fuss with this, as I recall, when Windows 11 came along, that they were requiring the TPM, the Trusted Platform Module, to be enabled on in BIOSes of all computers, and not all computers were sold with the TPM. I can't remember if it was an artifact of COVID or just some BIOS manufacturers, motherboard manufacturers, weren't including the the module on on the chips and certainly weren't turning it on in all cases. And Windows it, was, 11 it was probably a bit of both, I think. Some weren't doing it 
possibly because of cost and they're trying to hit price point and, and COVID and supply constraints. Soon at work, we had to retire a bunch of devices that just weren't Windows 11 compatible, whether it was the chipset or because of this. Yeah. So, but the point of having trusted platform module was you had secure boot. There's a whole keychain involved with that. You can, you know, verify what it is that's booting up, all the, all the various, various low level kernel type stuff that the BIOS brings along. You have a trustworthy boot path. You know, you get into Windows that you know that hasn't been hacked. And uh, now that all doesn't seem to matter. Yeah, not that secure or trusted. No, and you should be able to rely. I mean, this is one of the things that Apple are quite good at, although I'm, I, I'm almost certain there'll be a way to get around it on Apple computers as well, as they have been increasing the security of how Macs boot for quite a long time now. I'm trying to remember what model a Mac boot brought along the, their trusted platform module. I think it was like the Intel i I something Mac Mini, like when it went silver, that that started having it, and some of the Mac Pros, and and they had the Bridge OS and things with the, you know, the MacBook Pros that ran Bridge OS with the T two um, Touch Bar and stuff like that. Yeah, the T two chip. So that that started bringing all this along as Apple were using some of their own Apple Silicon whilst working with the Intel chip, and then obviously as we've gone to our full Apple Silicon, it's all built in, but. I think a lot of this has happened on the Mac side and, and a lot's happened on Windows to be fair that most users won't even understand or know about but it has moved forwards in a big way. I don't think Apple get enough praise for it but I do fear that this doesn't sound good for the Windows one if it's yeah, if it's got an active malware on it. No, it's it's not good. I mean, you, you never want computers to become less secure and in this day and age of you know people installing things like Pegasus spyware on iPhones and, and things like this going on with Windows and, you know, concern about operator vendors and how much keylogging and things they do. And Apple, again, with sending your, you know, metrics back to people even when you opt out of it, it's it's bad when the manufacturers do it, despite how secure they make their operating systems and machines. But malware that makes it even less secure is real problematic. Yeah, and this one, though, if you read further down the article, it says what it does disable. So, not only can this malware obviously get around the secure boot, it then can turn off, in essence, a BitLocker, Windows Defender, and the user access control. And that's the bit that pops up in Windows to make you put your username and password in if you want elevated permission to install something, delete something, change a setting. So it, it can do quite a lot of damage in a, in a stealthy manner. Yeah, a bit of a concern, that one. Yeah, I mean, you could you could see it phoning everything that a user does at home, banking details, share stuff, cor- corporately secure things that your antivirus wouldn't pick up because it just wouldn't have to report it to the antivirus. I mean, it's only a proof of concept at this point, but you could see how nasty this could get very quickly. Yeah, if this got weaponized, it could be quite painful. Yeah, not fun at all. Right, next up, we've got a link to Mastodon. This was something you put in, and this was somebody posting on Mastodon that you could turn off fonts and you get the internet running a lot quicker. Yeah, so there's two things here. There's one is you can install uBlock Origin, which is an ad blocker. I use a pie hole on my home network, which reduces all almost all adverts down to nothing, including on YouTube. I don't get little pop under ads on YouTube showing up in the videos. So that's great. One of the nice things about running a pie hole is it, you know, it reduces your attack surface. It stops various scams getting in. And the internet is just faster if it's not serving you ads all the time. It's just a fact that it is. Most browsers have something like uBlock Origin you can install, which does it on a per-browser basis. So Firefox has uBlock Origin. Chrome is something similar. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the Chrome one might be going away as they move to a different standard. Google wanting to see ads, who'd have thunk it? But this was another thing I hadn't thought of, is you can actually just force Firefox to not download the fonts that the website wants you to use, which is also going to speed up your browsing as well, that it's not you're not getting that fonts inflicted on you as well. So I did that this week, and actually I am noticing, even on very fast internet connections, how much snappier pages load. 
Yeah, I wonder if I need to try this. My internet's very quick here, but it can be frustrating sometimes. You think I'm just loading a simple page or why is it so slow? So I am interested, but I think this isn't doable on the iPad. So that's going to cause me some issues. Sure, but what device are you using right now? I am on my Mac, but I don't use that most days of the week. Just point note, you could have a goal. Uh, you could install yeah, Firefox. Yeah, no, I should try it out. I think you should. Next story is a perennial favorite, apps being denied on the App Store and then there being uproar and then them being approved again. So this is an app called Padgy, which is sort of a news blogging type app, as best as I can understand. I, I don't really understand. He writes his first morning pages. I, th I don't know what that is, whether it's just a little sort of note to himself of things he wants to do for the day or, or whatever it is. Anyway, it's a very simple, straightforward app. It involves a little bit of writing. He submitted it to the App Store and it was immediately denied on a particular guideline of the App Store of it being spam. There was all sorts of hoo-ha, various people got involved, including Gruber and people like that on apps getting rejected again. He went to sleep one night, woke up the next day and it had been approved. Now, what's slightly different about this story for Padgy is that some other developer already had an app on the App Store called Padgy, so he'd been put in the same bucket as spam. Somehow they went out and verified that he was the actual verified developer of the app. So I just think it's a fascinating story that there was a little bit of follow through this time. Yeah, and as usual with that review, it doesn't sound like they look terribly far. They just look, oh, nothing we can do, move on and just, just you know, deny it as it were. So yeah, they've still got a lot of work to do with the App Store, I think. They, they seem to allow a lot, a lot of malware through or spammy apps and then actually legitimate ones don't seem to get through. It's, it's very bizarre. It's, it's, a, it's a sad state of affairs, actually. If you think of things like last week with the, with the scammy two-factor apps and the fact that Apple tell us it's a walled garden for your security. You're not allowed to run other browsers. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to sideload because we're the, the guardians of all your privacy. And then these things do exist and these things do get rejected. And developers have put lots of times into thing, you know, have no, you know, they may have wasted lots of certainly hours and possibly large amounts of money developing these things just for on a whim for it to be rejected without due diligence. I mean, that's the particularly annoying thing about this story is that he was the developer of the application. So yeah, not a great look. Yeah, not, not good at all on Apple's front, this one. Yeah, but I think it's worth highlighting these stories, actually, just to show the fickle nature of the App Store. Agreed, agreed. It's a nightmare, isn't it? It is. Next story was just one I found while I was poking around, not in that deep in the internet, but one that might not surprise anyone, actually, about tech hoarding, of which I'm quite guilty of. If I go down to my little sort of tech cave I've got downstairs, I have a large number of cables, keyboards, connectors, dongles, docks, yeah, various USB sticks and all sorts of things that I always think, I can't throw those away. They might actually be useful someday. And in this case, this is a story from PC World that had a box of old USB A to C cables, 43 of them, particularly in this case. They tested the 43, one was, it, one was good, 10 were actively dangerous. What did you think of this story? It just pointed out to me how much I hate buying cables on Amazon because I'm always worried, am I going to get the right one? Is it going to do the speed? Because you kind of just want something to go, which is the cable that does everything and it's not ridiculously priced. And it's kind of the same when you buy like a HDMI cable because there's so many variants, but they've all got the same end. So I'm not surprised by this. Well, I'm, I'm surprised probably by the dangerous bit. I'm not surprised by the only one cable was fast piece because I just think it's a nightmare to understand because they all look the same. This is only going to get worse, actually. Much as I'm fervently hoping for the day where USB-C everywhere, USB-C cables are an absolute minefield. An absolute minefield. Getting one that is power and display compatible to talk between docks is really difficult. 
you know, and is it USB-C, is it Thunderbolt, whatever, insert number here, two, three, four, you know, it's just, I, I don't like it. I like the concept of USB-C and Thunderbolt, but I've no idea what my cables are. No, I mean, this is it. Up to now, we've largely been talking about USB-C in the thought of charging a device more than anything else. It's the same shaped hole. It plugs in at the wall. I should be able to get enough volts out of it for it to charge my device. And I think with the exception of maybe the dangerous ones that will also exist in this format as well, that's been fine. But as soon as you start talking about, you know, sending video, sending power at the same time, possibly audio, you know, a whole dock's worth of other things along the USB-C cable, is it lightning, whatever, is a problem. Thunderbolt rather than lightning, sorry. Yeah, agreed. And for most people, they won't they won't know. And I don't think us techie people know. So, yeah, I, I think like with Wi-Fi, they just need a simple way of branding it. Is it Wi-Fi one two three four five six six E? And they've gone back into the letters again. They should have just stuck with numbers, I think. So, yeah, I think you and I are on the same page on this one. Yeah, a little label would be nice, wouldn't it? I believe there's some sort of device you can buy if you're geeky that you can test your USB-C cables on on Kickstarter. Uh, but you shouldn't need a device, should you? That, that's that's the thing, isn't it? I think it should be easy. I'm in the shop. On my iPad box, it says I need a Thunderbolt 4 cable. It should be very clear on the cable I'm buying, is it Thunderbolt 4? And this is why I need it. I, I don't know. I just find it a minefield. So our story earlier about them limiting the, the next generation of iPhones for made-for-iPhone with the USB-C cables, do you think that's going to make things worse or better? It's just another way of Apple taxing people on making cables. That's all that is. There's no need to do it, but you can see why they're going to do it. But maybe, maybe it would make it better in a way because... If you want the cable that's going to perform the best, because you're the, a videographer and you need to download all your videos, you need to get the you know the made for iPhone cable. Whereas if you were just charging your device, I'm sure there'll be loads out there. You know, there's lots of third party brands. Almost certainly, but my memory of a lot of Apple caves, cables, particularly Lightning ones, is they were the most fragile. They'd often split at the cable end on on Lightning things. If I had to replace a cable more often than not, it would be an Apple one I was replacing. Yeah, I guess so. I've quite lucky i guess with cables but i haven't had children go through them yet which i'm about to get into yeah yeah i, I that's that's a story for another day is how, how children just leave their phones plugged in all the time and you find you come in and you find them with them charging because they're always on their phones bent at crazy angles and there's wires hanging out of the connectors and all the rest of it and you're like ooh, that's not nice so yeah that's a whole different thing yeah agreed should we move on to windows supporting iMessage yeah tell us about this I don't know much about this, if I'm honest. So there's a new version of Phone Link for Windows. So this is something that Microsoft provide, and it uses Bluetooth to link to your phone. It previously only worked for Android, but now will work for an iPhone. And it then passes commands and messages to the Messages app on a paired iPhone. Um, so this means you can, and I always wanted this when I worked in corporate land and I didn't have an iPad. Like, how could I just use my PC to send text messages? So this means you can send and receive all iPhone messages, text and iMessages through your, the Phone Link app on your PC. How does this work with encryption with everything? I just, I'm amazed this is a thing. I mean, I suspect it's similar to what works with Bluetooth in your car. So my Tesla will let me connect my phone to the Tesla system and read out any sort of received messages. It can't distinguish between an iMessage or a text message. It's not good at emoji. It's not good at all sorts of bits and pieces. I suspect it's something similar to that that it's using to sort of negotiate with Bluetooth to send these on to you. Right, okay, so they're breaking down into quite a low level of it's just some text, in essence. But fair play that they've engineered this because I thought it was a big bit missing when they brought the phone link out many years ago that it was basically Android only. Because they were, they were also doing a thing as well 
I don't know where that is in Windows. When you got up from your desk and walked away with your phone, it would lock it when you were so far away, which I thought was a great feature. So how many people leave their PCs unlocked in, in corporate environments? Yeah, lots. It's, it's, it's looked on very dimly in our environment, I must say. Uh, same in ours. But no, it's, it's quite interesting they've done this. And I, I just wonder how long it will go on for. I wonder what Apple's thought on it is. Is this, a, oh, that's good. People can use it. Or no, we want you to use our interface. They want you to use the interface, don't they? I mean, well done, Microsoft, for sort of reverse engineering it, even if it is quite a low-level implementation of it. I mean, to me, as a Mac user who has the phone, the iPad, and all the rest of it, this feels so limited that you haven't got the continuity, you haven't got the universal clipboard, you haven't got all the, you know, the being able to authenticate your a password app with your watch and all the rest of it that comes with having these devices that are linkable to it. But if you're a Windows user and you're in corporate land, like you say, and all you need is not to be found looking at your phone every five minutes so you can answer your text, at least it's given you that. Yeah, I, th I think that's all it's, it's good for. But like you, I just use my iPad generally for sending texts because people often go, why are you sending me such a long text? Like, because I just type it on my keyboard. It's no different than sending an email. Yeah, and I'm sure there's people out there that prefer to use messages now on their Macs than, than type, type them out on their phone just because you can be. It's easier to find links and send them and all the devices that having an extended keyboard and a big screen gives you as opposed to, and let's face it, autocorrect hasn't got any better, has it? Nope. In fact, I think, I think it gets worse every sort of six minutes, frankly. Every time I type, it seems to be getting worse. It's not improving. There's only been widespread criticism of it lately, I think. It's definitely not any better for me. Yeah, it's not a good thing. I think that'll do us for news. Gone long on news this week. That's fine. We can be fairly quick in the main show and things this week. It's not bad to go long on news. It's interesting when you get a good story to get your teeth into. Yeah, so look, I've got a couple of bits on media. So first up, the media, gold. I mentioned the gold TV show last week. I finished it this week. Fantastic. Would 100% recommend the Gold TV show. Really quite enjoyed the ending on it. Won't give any spoilers away. But yeah, would recommend. Big thumbs up. And that was the one that starred the same person that plays one of the lead characters in Slow Horses, which is an Apple TV Plus show that you and I both enjoyed and liked. And it's on the BBC. It's on the, it's an iPlayer show. But yeah, we definitely recommend. It's quite short, so it's easily watchable. And hopefully there'll be a follow-up. It's on the BBC. I just modify our case note, our, our show notes there because I'd written ITVX. I wasn't sure if it was BBC or ITV. And then also for me as well, media. One thing, is, Slow oh. Horses, Slow Horses, renewed for season three and season four. Fantastic. Just in case anybody didn't know, I, I heard a thing the other day that it's not just been renewed for another season. We've gotten two more seasons for sure out of it. So that's tremendous news. I think they filmed the first two back-to-back. -back, so I wonder whether they do that again and film the next two back-to-back because -back, they're quite short shows so they could probably do it all it all together and therefore it's probably cheaper for them better economies of scale definitely and long may they make it it's terrific 100 agreed i've actually got some of the books behind me on the shelf and i need to finish reading them but i've really enjoyed the books as well would would equally recommend so i heard casey liss on upgrade this week talking about having read the books but not having seen the show and he said the books weren't terrible but they weren't that exciting I wonder how much, and I was as I was watching the show, I was thinking this, how well does a lot of this stuff apply to an American sensibility? It's a very British show. It is a very British show, and especially the second book is set in a bit more in the country and stuff. So mm, I enjoy I enjoyed the books, So, and they're also on Audible. So I, I would recommend a listen. If you enjoyed the show, it's good to have a bit more background, I think. Fair enough. Um, I was also just going to follow up on, on Formula One this year. So as we discussed at the top of the show, I've been watching the Formula One. But just to note here, if you're watching the show and you're on Sky, you can, whilst you're watching it, you can pick the onboard camera of any one of the 20 cars to watch, which I thought was kind of neat because I thought they, they generally have quite good coverage. 
they, they allow it where if you join partway through, you can catch a catch up on the red button. But this year, you can push the red button and pick any of the 20 cameras on any of the cars that you want to watch. I thought, that's quite cool. Yeah, that is quite cool. I mean, again, that's a good use of technology to let, you know, if you've got a particular favourite driver you want to watch or you think something exciting going down. Because I will say one of the things about coverage of, again, I can only really speak for motorbikes, is that there's a tendency to follow either the leader of the championship or just who's at the front. And often the most exciting bits of racing are going on towards the back or the middle of the grid when people are actually swapping positions. If there's a runaway leader in something, it's really dull just to watch them go around the track, you know, lap after lap after lap, way out in front of everybody else. So that's quite a nice feature to be able to pick the people that, you know, the driver you're interested in or something that may be interesting. Is it just the one camera? Do you get, can you, is there forward and backward facing cameras or how does that work? No, I think it's just the one on top of their head, basically. It's just above them in the air intake. But I thought it was quite neat. And it's probably not that, that complicated in that they, they were filming them anyway, and you can just pick, pick the live stream in essence. But like you, you often look down on you know on the grid on who's in which position. And it's like, oh, they, those two people have swapped position. When did that happen? I missed that. And it would be nice to go and watch something. I just thought it was a nice addition. They've even updated the Sky Sports app to support it so you can pick the cameras. Like I say, it's probably not really that complicated, but I just thought it was a good add-on to the service that they already provide. No, that is good. MotoGP has had something similar, I think. You could pick which rider you want to follow, but it was only like the top eight or something like that. It wasn't every single rider on the grid that you could follow. And they keep trying to do interesting technical innovations, like they had a shoulder cam last year for a rider. You know, So rather than just, there's three on the bikes generally, one facing forward, one facing backwards, and one somewhere else. But now you'd actually get the rider hanging off and doing all the bits and pieces they did. So they're always trying to innovate in these sports to make it more more engaging, the coverage. Yeah, we, we've had helmet cams and they did it on a few people and I think they've now got it on everybody, but that's that's more an on-demand thing that, that they choose when you get it. Helmets are a bit more, a bit less in the wind than they are on a motorbike, I think, when they're hanging off. The helmet one's a bit annoying because it's inside the helmet, so you've got to see, it's quite good to see what the driver's seeing because you, you're looking through their visor in essence because it's off to one side, but equally you get all the reflections of the lights and things. So it's not fantastic, but it does give you an idea of what it's like. So they're not commonly used. Do they do the heart rate sensors in Formula One? Uh, no. Yeah, so MotoGP, they quite often stick heart rate sensors on the riders. But last year, towards the end of the championship, they had them on the team managers as well for the for the end of the championship, see who was getting excited about winning the championship. That was quite fun. Yeah, I could see that. Like you say, it's about what are the metrics, how can we make it more engaging and make it different from last year? Yeah, definitely. Anyway, sorry, enough about motorsport this, year, this week. I've only really watched one show this week. I haven't had a huge amount of time of it, as usual, lots of bits and pieces on. I've continued to watch Star Trek Picard Season 3. Episode 3 just came out on Friday. This is what, sorry, non-Star Trek people, this is what Star Trek Picard should always have been, a continuation of the next generation. Some of this in-space visual effects are slightly ropey for my liking. They've actually gone back and they've tried to remake a couple of the, the, the motion pictures, I think, from the original crew. There's sort of definite hints back to Star Trek, the motion picture, Star Trek 2, Star Trek 3, which is okay. It's the most Star Trek, Star Trek show I think there's ever been in some senses. But it's nice to see these characters. I could spend all day watching these characters. So, good. It is good when you get a universe that you could spend all day watching. I love things like that. I've never been into Star Trek, and I don't know why. I've never just, it just was never on in my house. I think it would be right up my street, though. So, I keep meaning to find time for it, but there's just so much TV out there, isn't there? That is the problem. I think we are oversaturated. Yeah, and you know, how long does a Formula One race take to watch? Two hours. There you go. You know, that's that's a serious time commitment, isn't it? It's hard to do all that and look after the kids and record a podcast. So it's fair enough. 
Yeah, and Formula One is the one thing I, I watch in the daytime whilst the children are around, whereas most other things I watch are normally in the evening once they're in bed. But Formula One I watch when it's on because I, I do enjoy it. Fair enough. That's all I've got for media. Yeah, on to games then. Turning to their games awards, we have a number of nominations for the, for the game BAFTAs. So best game they've nominated, Cult of the Lamb, recommended on this podcast, Elden Ring, God of War Ragnarok, Marvel Snap, I think I've talked about it in this podcast before. Stray and Vampire Survivors, which I definitely have. So actually the best game category is quite an interesting one. Yeah, I did look at I did look at the best game and a few others, but I thought best game was interesting because it was quite a broad range of games you've got in there. You've got some very different games. I see you've got Marvel Snap in there, that Vampire Survivors, which you can play on your iPhone. It's got you know, 16-bit graphics, up to everything like God of War, Ragnarok, which is meant to be amazing and is, you know, it's a PS5 title. I think it's PS4 as well. And it's got stunning graphics. So, so you've literally got every type of game in there, which I think is quite good that it's a broad range. It's not just all the AAA games. Yeah, I go with that. And Elden Ring is hardcore. You know, it's a it's a From Souls game. It's one of those extremely hard, you know, the bosses will, you'll die multiple times. It's hard to get your head around. You need to do all the moves involved in it. It's it's a huge game as well. So that's hardcore. And then Cult of the Lamb, I'd say, is not. And Vampire Survivors is not. And Marvel Snap is definitely not. That's very cross-platform. Play it on your phone, play it on your iPad. Yeah, it's, it's a good range, actually, isn't it? Yeah, I, that was probably the one category... I'd heard the most of, and I thought, fair enough. I quite interest in that, in that it's such a broad spectrum. Yeah, fair enough. I don't think it's worth going through all the other sections actually, because we haven't, you know, we haven't talked about many of these games, and and the best game is probably the most relevant one. And hopefully, the the develop the the, the Baftas will cover themselves in a little more glory than they managed on on film. It could scarcely get any worse. I did like under family, just honourable mention. They got Lego Star Wars there, which certainly landed well in my household. I must say, my Got my nine-year-old son into Star Wars. And the game did look good. I haven't sat down to play it, but I've played some of it through him and it did look fantastic. So, of nothing. I played a tiny bit of that yesterday with my youngest daughter. She didn't like it at all. There's feedback. <laughs> she didn't like. She doesn't mind a Lego game or she didn't mind a Lego game. But this one almost turns into a first-person shooter sometimes. When you hold down left one or something like that, it will give you crosshairs in, in a very sort of Call of Duty type way. She didn't like that at all. That's probably what my son liked the most. Yeah, there's a hint for the future. Quite. I mean, he's playing whatever the game is that all the kids play. Roblox. Fortnite. Yeah, Roblox is next then. Anyway, should we move on? I have fired up my Nintendo Switch. And why have you done that? Because you mentioned either last week or the week before that there was some stuff out for the Switch. You mentioned Metroid Prime Remastered, and I was like, I hadn't heard of this. And so I turned it on and I went on the App Store and I was like, oh, there's an update out for Nintendo. So I installed this Switch update, which is Nintendo firmware 16, and brought zero changes to it. And it did allow me then to go and install the Game Boy emulator. And I, did, I didn't know the Game Boy emulator was out on the Switch. There was also a Game Boy Advanced emulator on the Switch. I thought, fair play to Nintendo. They're slowly chipping away at all of their back catalogue. Because you've got the NES, you've got the SNES, the N64, you've got the Game Boy. And you've got the advanced Game Boy. You don't need to buy anything extra for the Game Boy or the Game Boy Advanced, but I think you do need an add-on for the N64 on your internet pass that you, you pay for from Nintendo, which I've not done. I did fire up the Game Boy. I did install Tetris in black and white, and I did play Tetris and loved it. Even though it's in black and white, it's not using up the whole screen because obviously the Game Boy wasn't a widescreen like the Switch. Fantastic. Generally enjoyed it. I thought they'd done a really good job of bringing it up to the Switch. But I was just impressed with the amount of their back catalogue that they're porting because 
this is probably something good for Nintendo that they can use on future consoles because they've modernized the interface for it. So I think there's quite a good feat of engineering there. And I was impressed. And, and it was all free. Like I say, I could download the Game Boy and install a few games for nothing. And then I then bought Metroid Prime Remastered because I always wanted this on my Wii. I never got to it. I downloaded it. It cost me £35 in the UK. Fantastic. Really well done. Looks great. Good gameplay, as you would expect with a Metroid game, and would 100% recommend if anybody out there enjoys Metroid Prime. So I thought it was quite good. It's disappointing that the Nintendo software hasn't really moved on. That's the only thing we thought the OS might have got a bit quicker. Loading the shops always seems to take time. But generally, great updates. Good they're doing all the emulation. Curious to see where they're going to go with the next version. But that's all I have to report on the Nintendo. So the hardware was never a ball of fire, was it? I mean, just installing new software is not going to give you a faster chipset. No, I don't disagree with that, but they've just never really done it with the OS. It's just never really moved on or, you know, you'd have thought it would have evolved if they'd done 16 iterations of the OS, but it, they're more like minor point updates and just bug fixes. Whereas it'd be good if, you know, why can't I see more screen game icons on the home screen? Why do they need to be so big? Why why can't it, like, like I say, load up the shop a bit quicker? Why, why is the animation a bit jerky? There's just some things they could do there to improve it. Whereas they just, I don't, I don't know what size team they have right in the OS, but it, it seems quite small. Now, maybe they're off right in the, the next firmware for the next console. Who knows? But I thought it was generally on the whole, they bought some good stuff, like I said, with the Game Boy and, and that. And I enjoyed that. As, and it's nice to have something for free sometimes. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Although, as always, all things Nintendo, I'm a bit cynical about it's all about getting money out of their old IP than it is about actually bringing you the best possible thing, which is fair enough. They're a company, they need to make money. I'm okay with that. I've popped in the show notes a little link to an emulating pro an emulation project that does better Nintendo ports than Nintendo. So this particular emulator will give you 60 frames per second in Mario 64. I think it's 40 frames per second max on the Switch as a first-party emulator from Nintendo. And will let you do things like ray tracing and stuff as well. So, you know, he's actually going to town and doing proper, doing Nintendo's job for them, I think. They should just employ him. They should, but more likely they'll sue him. <laughs> yes, and then take his code. Yeah, and then jump on it and set it on fire or something because they don't like things that aren't invented here. Yeah, quite. I don't disagree, but I was impressed with some of the stuff Nintendo have done, and I would recommend Metroid. I, I, have, remastered. A, I have a fun, odd experience with Nintendo. I, sort of, I love some of the games. I hate the way they go about producing and developing them and, and announcing them and supporting them. Yeah, I can see that. They are not perfect. And they do have some fantastic games with some amazing mechanics. Super Mario Odyssey, I was playing that with my son. Fantastic. I still love that game. And I want to go back and play it again. And it was a great game to play through, and I really got into it. But where's the follow-up? It's been like three years. Like, they've only given one real Mario game on this platform. Where's the next one? Yeah, not good enough. Okay, I can finish off just with a quick note. As well as playing a little bit of the Star Wars game on my daughter yesterday, we played a game called Injustice 2. Bizarrely, of all the games you can get, what she really likes is a fighting game in sort of a Street Fighter type way. We found one called Injustice 2. It's got all the DC characters in it, and it's Superman against the Flash, or Superman against Swamp Thing, or Batman versus Poison Ivy, or something like that. And it's just a lot of fun. If you ever like that sort of head-to-head -head element, it's really well animated, there's great moves. I can't play it, I just bash the buttons. I don't actually know how to do a combo or a dodge or any of that kind of stuff. And generally she beats me by knocking my kneecaps off, but we had a lot of fun for a couple of hours and I'd just recommend it. Injustice 2, it was for free on, well I say for free, it was part of Xbox Games Pass. I think it's in the Nintendo, the PlayStation offers if you go back far enough as well. Okay, like you, I'm not good at these games. I just mash all, mash all the buttons. I did play my son at Mortal Kombat the other day in a shop because they had one of those 
are fake arcade machines that you can buy and we had a quick go at it i'm never any good at them but um, it's it is i think these are best in two player when you're playing with somebody you're sat next to on the couch i think that makes a big difference yeah definitely and it's quite nice to do that and i'm quite enjoying the xbox for that at the moment I, i'm sure i'd enjoy the playstation just as much but i've only got one controller for the playstation and based on your ability to go through them as quickly as you have i'm quite happy with the xbox at the moment i think that's fair but equally the xbox has got like game pass which is a no-brainer isn't it because you get so many games and you can just try them out and yeah. it doesn't cost you anything so i'm a big fan of the xbox game pass even though i don't have it yeah no that's been a good thing anything else in games no i think that's us main show there was a story i've just popped in at the last minute here that i actually wanted to talk about just because i have a very new experience of it my bike came. yes your yeah. bike came and you sent me a picture and i'm quite jealous and then started looking up how do i get one of these because it looks stunning so why don't you tell us what what make and model you've got so i have bought a van Moof s5 i ordered it in march last year and it took till march this year to come with all the shipping delays and, and everything that went on with it it was i will say the delivery process was not great and the communication from van Moof was also not great that you know that i'd get a notification that the shipment had been delayed again and again and again because of parts because of this because of that and i actually i inquired of the company last week to say where's my bike because you said you were going to ship it on the 22nd of february or something and i got an email from them going sorry it'll be another three to five weeks and then i got an email three seconds afterwards going your bike is shipped so i, I their, their communication needs a little bit of work wow i wonder maybe they're overcome with orders or maybe they're not used to all these delays but you'd have thought Given you order it a year ago, they'd have a system in place by now. You'd have thought so. And a little bit of background to this. I think I was I talked about in the podcast going to Amsterdam in November last year. And Amsterdam is full of Van Moof bikes. The earlier one primarily, the S3. But there are an awful lot of Van Moof bikes in Amsterdam. And I just walked around being horribly jealous that everybody had got my bike basically the whole time I was there. Anyway, the bike itself is a very sleek looking piece of kit. It's all very integrated. There's very there's not a lot in the way of wires hanging off it or anything like that. It has integrated headlights. There's an integrated motor on the front wheel to help you go up and up hills and you know zip along quite quickly. It's got some LED screens built into just beside the handlebars so you can see how much battery you've got left or what power level's going on or all that kind of stuff. It has things like Apple Find My built into it, which is really cool, actually. The same things I can track my luggage and my keys with are actually just built into the bike, and you set it up as part of the initial setup for the bike. Yeah, it's 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 a very pretty thing. I've got to say, it's a very well thought out piece of engineering. It arrived in a box, a very large box that weighed quite a few kilograms, and you have to put a certain amount of it together. So, from what you've said, this is proper tech meets bike. So it's an electric bike, but obviously it also has pedals. You have to put it together. So how much putting it together did you have to split this thing? I'd say it took me 40 minutes to put it together. Most of it is there. It comes without pedals, without the handlebar set up in the correct position, so off to one side, and no front wheel, no motor attached, nothing like that. Okay, so you've literally got to, what, bolt everything together, plug any wires in? There's the one wire that has to go from the motor on the front wheel into the frame of the bike. That's it as far as wires go. Okay, because I'm quite impressed with the look of the, this bike because when you see it, it's hard to go, is it an electric bike or not? Because it's not got a big, bulky-looking battery. I'm guessing that's hidden in the frame. Yeah, the battery's integrated into the frame. And the, the on full power, so there's four power settings, one at four, one of them being the least, four being the most. You have to pedal. You can't just press a button and it will zip along for you like some e-bikes do. You have to pedal all the time and it gives you assist on that. On the lowest level, it's something like 110 miles of assist you get. 
Wow, that's quite a lot of miles of assist, is it not? Yeah, it is. On the highest level, if you're using it all the time on hills and something like that, I think it's f just over 40 assists you get. So actually, it's quite a big size battery in it. Wow, and I do think it does it look so good. And it's got lights built in front and back. I think you mentioned that. And then, yeah, it's got a power gauge isn't it, up on the handlebar so you can see how much power is left in the battery. Yep. And it has an integrated clippy thing if you get the right iPhone case to clip your iPhone to it. And then there's a dashboard that will tell you how fast you've gone and sort of other metrics for your cycle as you do it. And can you use like Apple Maps with it so you can plot your cycle route? Or? Not obviously. But I mean, you could obviously have Apple Maps up at the same time. because And the other thing is, if you get the right connector, I think your phone charges from the bike battery as well, which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. But you need another case, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's a specific case to f click on, because it clicks onto the frame. It almost becomes part of the frame from the look of the connector. I'm not going to get this. I left my phone in my pocket. The, the bike does still record what it's done. So it communicates with Bluetooth with your phone and will tell you not where you've been on the ride, although if you fire up your Apple Exercise app at the same time, you'll obviously get the map of where you've been anyway. But it will tell you how far, how fast, whether you went up and down hills and all that kind of stuff. So it is still recording a certain amount of data. For me, I think the only drawback I've seen is you can't pick different colours because like you were just saying now, and I think about it in Amsterdam, if everybody's got the same bike, that must be really frustrating that there's, there's not much personalization that you can do on it, if any. You can, I think on the S3, you can pick like two colors. Yeah, and the the S5 is gray. It's light gray. <laughs> it's just gray. Yeah. It comes in any color you want, as long as it's gray. Well, I'm, I'm okay with that. It's not an offensive color. It looks quite, and there's not many of them in the UK. In Amsterdam, it would be more of a problem that everybody had them, as far as I can see. Their improvements over the S3 to the S5 are primarily in the gearbox, as far as I can work out. that If you're pedaling really, really hard, I think the gearbox in the S3 was a bit of a problem. People were having issues and sending them back. Reliability wasn't great. They seem to have sorted a lot of that out on the S5, I hope. I think it looks great, and as soon as you sent me some pictures, I went off browsing their website to work out how I could finance one through my work, cycle-to-work scheme. But um, it does look a stunning device, and I really like the design. It's nice to see quite a fresh, fresh design. It still looks like a bike, but they've just tweaked it ever so slightly. And did you get any of the extras with it? Because I think you can buy, like breakdown or theft and stuff did you get anything like that no i didn't buy anything else they have got an interesting you can pay another 200 quid and they'll if they can't find your bike in a year they'll just replace it with another one but given it'll take a year to come i wasn't sure how much use that would be i mean may as well order it on your insurance and and, and do that so that that's a factor yeah and it, i think they've got on top of their supply chain because i think if you order one now it'll be here in a couple of months it is. A, I think it's a really stunning looking device. I, it I it is. And, cool. and things are built in, like it's got mudguards, you know, stuff that often doesn't come with bikes that you buy in the UK market. Yeah, it's got mudguards. And I do like that it's got Find My built in because, like you say, you know, it's, that Find My is a great technology and great to have it in your bike. You don't need to put an air tag on it somewhere. I, it, what I did find quite weird was I put it together, I plugged it in, and you can't see it on the picture on the website, but the charging port is sort of just under the rear light, so it's sort of, it's also built into the frame. There's a little weather, weatherproof thing you can unhitch, and you plug the charger into the back, and off you go. It okay, immediately wanted to upgrade its firmware, which I've never had to do on a bicycle before. <laughs> of course, like, this is the future now, isn't it? Everything you buy needs a firmware upgrade as you take it out of the box. I hadn't thought about that. So how do you upgrade the firmware? Is that through an app on your phone? It's through an app on your phone. It took an hour. My, my phone didn't go to sleep. It, download, it wasn't the downloading yet. Obviously, it's not the fastest processor in the world on the bike. So it just I set it going. I left it in the garage and I wandered off and left my phone downstairs next to the bike. Thankfully, it didn't go to sleep. And I, well, I guess it's it's like with my car. The downloading it to the phone is relatively quick. It's the transfer from the phone to the 
built in firmware that normally takes the time and then it's got to install it and reboot and, and all of that. Yeah, I mean, my Tesla does this in 25 minutes. No matter how big the, the, the firmware is, the Tesla will do it in 25 minutes. It's ready to drive again. But uh, yeah, it took an hour on the bike. Wow, it's quite cool. I mean, at what point are we going to have bikes with SIM cards in it that self-update? You can see that that could be in the future. Definitely. All right, so I will report back. I've only done two cycles on it so far. I cycled to work and back on Friday. It made it took me 10 minutes to cycle to work. It's all downhill for me. 10 minutes to cycle to work. It took me 11 minutes to cycle back. Well, that's all right. I know where you live and where the uni is. That's that's all right. It, it is uphill all the yeah. way. So I was quite pleased with that, actually. And I wasn't completely knackered. I had to cycle. I did feel a little bit of a twinge in my thighs by the time I, you know, when I woke up on Saturday morning. So far, so good, I think is what to say. You'll continue in our theme of the health episode this week. I like it. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good thing to report back on. And I, and I will follow up on it. You know, if I have issues with it or all the rest of it, I think it is worth talking about. But it, it brings home to me what you hinted at there about whatever it gets nicked is that I don't trust taking out in the world. Like I went to have an eye test on Saturday and I thought, no, oh, I could cycle into town and do this. Actually, I don't know where I can securely secure my new, rather expensive bicycle near Vision Express to have my eyes tested. So I ended up driving in. That is the thing, isn't it? It's expensive and it stands out because it looks different. And it is, it's, if anyone knows what they're looking at, they will know how expensive it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So going to work, I'm okay. I'm going to be slightly naughty and bring it into the building and hide it under the stairs in my office. I'll try and sneak a picture of that for you just so I can show you where it's. Whereas you are, we have a, a corporate wide directive that bicycles don't go into the buildings, they get secured in bike racks outside. And there is some secure bike parking in the university, but it's not great. Swansea has a real bike theft problem, so I am twitchy about this, and therefore I'm bringing it in the building and hiding it. So I'm okay with that. I think that's fair enough. I sadly don't live close enough to cycle, but I really fancy one of these bikes. Yeah, I'm going to do a bit more with it, and I'll report back. Cool, look forward to it. Moving on, I think it's just maybe worth a little talk about my app of the week this week. So Keeping with the Sleep Plus Plus that I recommended last week, I'm going to recommend an app called Gentler Streak this week, which is does exactly what you and I have been hoping for that Apple's app would do, that it monitors your activity and will say, actually, you've done enough this week. You know, you've done more than your body is really designed for based on the data we've collected. Take a day off. You know, don't do this, don't do that. And it tries to gently encourage you to get better rather than rather than Apple's very gung-ho. Go on one more day and you'll smash it and you've, you've done this or you haven't done that or you're going to miss out because you haven't stood up and all the rest of it. So I quite like this notion that it's it's taking a bit more care over what it's collecting from you. Yeah, no, I was looking at this. It looks quite good and it reminds me of an app done by the same person who did Pet, Pedometer Plus Plus. I can't remember what the app was called, but it did something similar where it'd show you a streak. And I think rather than doing seven days a week, it basically said you can have a day off and it wouldn't penalise you on your streaks, basically. So I think this is a good concept. I don't understand why Apple haven't built this in because I think every now and again, it is important to have a rest day, but yet they only seem hell-bent on pushing you to beat all your streaks all the time. And I don't know. I think they need to get clever about it. But yet here we are, nine versions of watchOS in and they haven't made any changes to fundamentally how the rings work since day one. Yeah, and it is a problem that, you know, if you get COVID or, you know, you've got a cold or something like that, then all that activity goes. So I had a little, I had an amazing streak going. I think I had 380 plus days where I'd hit all three of my rings, you know, over a year, all three of my rings. I was really proud of it. I was chasing it. I had a little reason where I couldn't, you know, get up and walk around and do any activity or anything like that. And it's just gone. And what are the chances you're going to be able to do all three of those things again? Yeah, quite hard. I mean, it's quite a commitment, 300 odd days. 
you know, to do that. The only thing I learned with it is when I've been poorly is actually just to turn all the goals right down to nothing in essence. So you can turn the stand down to six hours, which I don't worry about counting the stand because that's not an issue for me. I worry about the workout, I try and do six minutes a day and 800 move, whatever the move number is a day. But if I'm having a day where I'm really poorly, I'll just turn those numbers right down. And if it might just be a five minute stroll around the house or something from really unwell. And that, that's what I do. And it keeps the street going, but it just doesn't feel right. Why can't there just be a, a big button that says, I'm not well today. Thank you very much. And obviously, if you push that button every day, Apple should go, hang on a minute. Are you all right? But I think they, they need to get the right balance in. But no, this gentle streak looks looks quite interesting. And it talks to Apple data anyway in the health app. So yeah, it looks quite good. Yeah, it sort of fits what I wanted to do at the moment. Let's face it, all of these trying to get you to achieve a goal things are artificial anyway. Whether you buy into Apple's closing your rings or gentler streaks, you're at the top of your curve or you're at the bottom of your curve. It's just whichever one you choose to to, to invest your time in. And you, what you've said there is is perfect. You're modifying the behavior of the application to fit how you feel. Why can't it do that anyway? I, I think it should. So I do use the Apple rings to, like after this podcast, for example, I'm going to go out for a 20-minute walk to top my rings up. And it does motivate me to do it because I'm trying to walk for an hour a day. So I'm. it does work for me, the motivation bit, but I do believe that they do need a mechanism just so you can have a rest one day. You need to get a dog. That's how you get more steps. Yeah, that, that would help too. But I'm, I'm quite good at going out for a walk without a dog. And I'm trying to do it to be a little bit healthy. And I like to walk after dinner because I think that helps as well. It certainly helps for me just to have that 20 minutes to myself, listen to a podcast. So I think the general app does make sense. It would be better, like I said, I think Apple need a mechanism to recognize a, a, a break day or, you know, a rest day. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's lots of reasons for it, isn't there? Even traveling, I found it to be a problem. You know, if you get up, you go off to Heathrow Airport at four in the morning, you're in a car, you walk around a terminal, you get on a plane, you're on a plane for 12 hours, you're knackered when you land, that day is wasted. There's no way in hell you're going to be able to hit your rings. They need to have allowances for life. They need to have a button that says plane travel because it's just a killer. When you're changing time zones and all of that, it just doesn't work. It's just, I don't know, it's, uh, that is the worst time to try and have a streak and keep it. I think is if you're doing any form of international travel. Yeah, I mean, tomorrow I'm going to Bristol, I'll be up early, I'm on a train, I'll be sitting in meetings, I'll get back on a train, I'll come back. It's really hard to do any of the stuff that you'd like to do. It's hard to get any exercise in, it's hard to do, you know, even hit your stand goals on days like that, frankly. And as you say, dropping the stand goals is a bit pointless, it's not a thing I'm bothered about, really. But uh, Agreed, agreed. So, shall we move on to the thing of the week? So, my thing of the week this week is glass. And I think I have talked about this when we first started in the show a bit last year. So I use this thing called Glass and it's the website is glass.photo and it's a subscription. You pay about £25 a year and it's where lots of people, very amateur photographers generally post photos that they've taken. And it's a bit of a social media platform, but not quite. I mean, you can comment on each other's photos, but there's no messaging service and there's no, you know, direct messages or posted messages. You post a picture, you can put a comment on it, you can categorize it. And equally, you can then, you know, like other people's photos or show your appreciation or drop a comment. And I'm quite enjoying it because I'm trying to get back into a bit of photography. I'm doing a bit of black and white photography at the moment. And I've used this service for the last year. I haven't posted that frequently, but I have spells of doing it. But I really enjoy it. And I love seeing other people's photos. Generally, people I don't know who they are. But it's nice to see somebody else's and get some inspiration. So I thought I'd recommend that for any budding amateur photographers out there. So it's like an Instagram but without all the meta stuff and more about the photography than what's being ph photographed, if that makes sense. 
yes, it's definitely about the photography rather than what's in the photo. And you've got mixed, you know, people doing all different things on there. Like I said, I'm doing a bit of black and white stuff. So I've been following some other people that I've just come across that do black and white photography, or you can follow people just doing general photography or street photography or whatever floats your boat or landscapes or portraits. But I just think it's quite a nice service. It's quite well done. The app, the app's got some way to go to be perfect, but you just upload a picture of yourself, put a few interests in, and then off you go to the races, basically. Can you use it for, you know, stock photos for things like that? Or is it surely you're just enjoying other people's photographs? Generally just enjoying other people's photos. I guess you could screenshot if you wanted to grab somebody else's photo, but it would be rubbish quality. I've never tried it. I just quite like it because it's nice to post a picture and see if you get any feedback on it. And it's nice to see some other photography if you're trying to get back into that space. No, I think that's fair enough. I... As we've talked about in this show, I've been using Mastodon a lot more. I posted a picture of my new bike on Mastodon and I got one person who liked it. And I thought, mm, oh, that, that's a shame. I would have On Twitter, I'd have got a bit more than that, I think. So how you sort of catching people's attention. And of course, it makes sense in the photography app. You know, it wasn't a particularly good photograph, I've got to say. But this is quite nice that you've got away from sort of the cloying fingers of meta and all the rest of it. And it's about that. The art, making the art rather than the art itself from what you've said there, which isn't, you know, I'm sure there's some very good pictures on their website, which is quite swanky, I must say. But yeah, sounds interesting. Yeah, and there's no, because you're, you're paying to subscribe, there are no adverts to it, which I quite like. And therefore, as there's no adverts to it, you're not being pushed anything or sold anything. You're just paying the, the owners of the service a small amount of money a year to use the service. So I'm really enjoying that aspect of it. I, it does feel a bit like what Instagram started off as, is people taking photos. Some people obviously filters. You're trying to take good photos back then and you posted it. But then it's just now turned into people just posting pictures of their food and their life and all their happy moments. Whereas, I don't know, I prefer... Bit more sort of arty photos, I guess, and I, I just quite like it. And it's it's quite a nice escape every now and again to go and have a look and just just see some photos and not loads of trash talk. So I think it's quite good. I'm assuming they're doing some form of, you know, monitoring for for any abusive comments and all that. But I haven't seen any of that side of it. So yeah, I don't do a huge amount on it, but but would recommend. I think is what I'm trying to say. Fair enough. Good recommendation. And that's it for the show. Sounds like a show. If anybody wants to get in contact, Rod's at G5Maniac at Mastodon.scot. I'm at underscore CJP at Mastodon.social. Or you can email us at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. And until next week, look forward to seeing you soon. Cheers. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye.